We think about that one wild and precious life with there's one path for us. And there's not. There's multiple paths that we can take. And it doesn't have to be moving to Mexico or taking an adult gap year. But if you can figure out what is going to bring you joy and that there are ways to inject joy through slowing down, through letting go, through listening to your heart and the universe to point you in the right direction, you will find something bigger than and better than potentially what you have today. The higher you go in the corporate food chain, the less control you have over your life. In this episode of The Creator Community, we'll hear how one brave soul took control back through an adult gap year in Oaxaca, Mexico with her family. The learning and growth and courage were immense and put her on a path to finally being present in her life and finding her journey to joy and entrepreneurship. Check out the show. Welcome to The Creator Community. This is a podcast for book publisher, New Degree Presser, and DP, powered by Manuscripts, Inc. I'm your host, John Saunders. This show is designed to celebrate, elevate, and showcase many of the incredible authors that publish their books with NDP. In this show, we learn about the authors, their journeys, and their books. This year, NDP will cross over 1,700 published authors on six continents and earned a spot on the Inc. 5000 list for the second year in a row. This is the fastest growing privately held companies in America. If you've ever thought of writing a book, but weren't sure where to start or how to finish, visit manuscripts.com to learn more. This is episode seven of season six, and today with me, Suzanne Roski. She is the author of I'm Supposed to Be Doing This, an adult gap year, which is due out January 2023. Suzanne is a leadership coach, taco and mezcal enthusiast, public speaker, and now an author. For 25 years, she was the picture of objective success, a partner at a global management consulting firm guiding Fortune 500 companies through business and team transformations. And then she embarked on her biggest transformation yet her own. Suzanne stepped away from her corporate life and into an adult gap here in Oaxaca, Mexico. Suzanne is the founder and CEO of Vamanos Executive Coaching, where she helps people and teams connect to their values, purpose, and mission so they can harness their momentum, show up as the impactful leaders they were meant to be, and unlock their full potential. Suzanne, great to see you. Welcome to the show. John, thanks so much. It's so nice to see you, and it's wonderful to be here today. It is always fun to interview people that sit in the same part of the country I'm in, right? You're right here in Washington, D.C., married with a few kids, and certainly an avid traveler. Before we get into your book, Suzanne, I think it's always fascinating for people to hear about their journey. Right? You left this, what on paper would sound like this nice, dare I say, cushy job, corporate America, and you went out on your own. You know, what what led you to where you are? Well, it is, it's an interesting story, and it starts probably when I was a kid. For as long as I can remember, I was the one who had the plan. I had it figured out. I knew what I wanted and I knew how to go get it. And I valued work. I started working at my parents' hardware store or my grandfather's at that time when I was eight years old. And that was my introduction to the working world. And I've been working ever since. And I sort of viewed it as I'd work at the store, I'd go to college, I'd get a job. I literally wanted a job in a city, in an office, so that I could sit in traffic. I need to go back and talk to 21-year-old Suzanne and really talk to her and shake some sense into her. But I did really well in this world of where you would receive accolades. If there was a brass ring, I was going after it. The carrot, the donut eating contest, like your proverbial metaphor, 
that was my jam. And I did really well. And because I was sort of structured in that way to go after these things, I worked up through the career and corporate ladder. I became a partner. And then one day I woke up and I realized that the prize for winning the donut eating contest was more donuts. And I was sick of donuts, but I didn't know what else I wanted to eat. I didn't know what was on the menu. I didn't know what I liked to do. I was a little bit lost. And that's sort of what brought me to a point over a series of years. It wasn't like this epiphany. And I was like, oh, don't like donuts. Going to go do my own thing. It took quite some time for me to actually listen to the voice inside of me that was telling me, this isn't it. This isn't what you're supposed to be doing with your life. But I didn't know how to figure that out. So that's kind of that journey of I was I was the kid who I liked gold stickers. <laughs> who doesn't love a gold star on the top of their homework, right? And you know, you've been getting gold stickers your whole life, working all these years. And it's such a traditional path, right? That we think yeah. we're supposed to be on, but that wasn't what you were supposed to be doing. Speaking about what you're supposed to be doing, sounds like writing a book was one of those things. Suzanne, how did you discover this author coaching program and how did you fit it into your, your busy life? Well, I'm going to say maybe I was supposed to be writing a book, but I didn't know it. <laughs> I sort of think of myself as an accidental author, if there can be such a thing. I know lots of people who have this dream of writing a book. I never had that dream to write a book. It wasn't in me for forever. I took my adult gap year and I came back and I thought maybe I'd write an article. And I started kind of putting things down and I was talking to some people and one person I was talking to is a woman, her name is Randy Braun, and she's also going to be publishing a book coming up in March through NDP called Something Major, the new playbook of for women at work. And she called me and said, hey, there is this program, it's the Creators Institute, and I think you should look into it because I think you have a book. And I was like, oh God, I don't know about this. Like, <laughs> I like I got an article, maybe. <laughs> like, I wanted to go on LinkedIn and say, like, this will take you three minutes to get through. But I said yes. I said yes to calling Professor Custer. I had a conversation with him. I told him about my experience taking a sabbatical, taking my family to Mexico, some of the lessons I learned. And he said, Yeah, there's something there. I think you've got a book. I wasn't convinced. And in fact, it felt daunting. Like the whole idea of writing a book, John, felt so daunting to me because in my mind, it was open a new document on your computer, write chapter one and start at the beginning and go to the end. And that fear of the blank page just seemed insurmountable. And what the program really did was it took it from daunting to doable. And I say that because we started in a cohort model but we started with just put some ideas out there. Now turn those ideas into 250 word snippets. Now turn those into stories. Now turn those into chapters. Now turn those into a book. And it was this iterative process that didn't feel so scary. Working with a developmental editor to really help me build characters, that was something that I could sink my teeth into. Now your question of where did I find time? Because as you mentioned, I have three kids, I have a husband, I was still working at my, my career as a global partner at a management consulting firm, and I was thinking about launching my own business, and we had a kitchen flood in the middle of it. So, you know, there was a whole house remodel. I generally got up pretty early in the morning. I'm an early riser. I would get up around 4, 
4.30 and I would write for about two hours. And the interesting thing I found is that sometimes I would dream about what I was going to write. Wow. So I would actually like go to sleep with this idea of what, you know, the story was going to be for the next day, or at least a topic area. I'd dream and I'd wake up and I'd write some things down. And so I made some mileage out of my out of my sleeping time. So I think that's part of the, the way I fit it in. And then the cohort model really spoke to me and worked well to have others that you could bounce ideas off of, commiserate with, meet and have a, a safe and sacred space on a weekly basis to actually sit and write and be held accountable for. All of those things together got me to today. Well, shout out to Randy Braun. You are not the first person to mention her name as someone who <laughs> shared this program with them. That is fantastic. And I appreciate the fact that you shared the early morning rise to get this done. One of the things I appreciated about this program, I published my book at the end of 2020, is that you know, if you like getting up early, great. If you like to write for an hour or two in the middle of the day, awesome. If you like to write for 12 hours on a Saturday, that works too. I was a night owl. I did mine at night. But you know, it's about it helps you find that sort of system that works for you. And, and glad that glad it came together for you so nicely. One other quick question about the operations of this thing, and that is your book cover, this lovely picture on it. Could you describe it for our listeners a little bit and just how that process came together to come up with that amazing sure. picture you pulled? Absolutely. So the picture is what is on the cover is a picture of me at a place in Oaxaca. It's called Ervel Agua. It is about 30 minutes from Oaxaca City. And my son snapped the photo of me while we were there. I've always been one of these people that I walk into a bookstore and I'm drawn to covers. That's what makes me pick up a book. But I don't know why I pick up a specific book. So when we were tasked and got to the exciting part of like, you're going to create a cover. And for my creative side, like that was like, this was like just money. I was like, yay, finally the cover. I said I wanted something clean. I wanted it simple. I wanted it to resonate and to connect with my book. I had no idea how to do that. And so I was actually went to Barnes and Noble one day and I took pictures of books that I liked and didn't like. I came home with like a hundred pictures. I was waiting for them to kick me out of Barnes and Noble. To be like, you got to go. Like this you, is You weird. need to buy something, ma'am. <laughs> yeah. Like, this is really strange. What are you doing? But when I started unpacking what I liked and what I didn't like, I found the formula for me that worked on simplicity. And then working with the NDP design team was really helpful to get something that turned into the cover that I have today. I had a couple of options. And one of the hangups I had about the cover that I ultimately landed on was I said to the design consultant, I don't know, it feels way too about me with the picture of me standing on the front of the book. And he said, you wrote a memoir. I think that ship has sailed. <laughs> so, so I said, okay, you're right. I have to get over myself that, you know, the picture of me is, is not the one. It just really represents freedom to me. And the feeling that I had while I was in Mexico, figuring out what I'm supposed to be doing. And the fact that it was sort of a family affair that my son took the picture made it that much more special. Well, being a fan of nature and a fellow mountain biker, as I think you are as well, I love that picture. Looking out into this vast space in the mountains and this just epic rock waterfall, right, is yeah. what it is. So, so cool. Well, thank you for sharing that story and the process that you went through to get it done. I think my cover went through 12 or 15 iterations in, in this whole thing. So I'm supposed to be doing this. Suzanne, what am I supposed to be doing? What is this book about? So... It's that is a really interesting question. And I, I think that if I had to boil it down, 
this is a coming of age story or a coming of middle age story where, (laughs) where I went through that point. I listened to the voice that finally said like, Hey, you're tired of donuts. What are you going to do now? And again, it wasn't an immediate recognition that I didn't like donuts. I kept eating the donuts and, and putting them into my mouth and shoving them into my belly because that's what someone had told me I was going to do. And when I finally pulled back and said, wait a second, I don't like the donuts. What I wanted when I was 21 isn't what I want at 45. How do I go about finding what I really want and what the next half of my life is going to look like? And so it is a, it's my story. It's my memoir of moving my family to Mexico, of understanding that I could do better and I had to do better for my family and for myself and for listening with intention and intuition of how I was going to move forward. And that's really what the book is, is about. It's the journey and the story of going from burnout to that freedom that sits in then and is summarized by that picture on the cover. Incredible. Burnout is such a pervasive thing, it seems, particularly as we've gone through this COVID period. And, you know, bravo to you for doing something about it, not just waiting for whatever someone else is supposed to tell you you should be doing, right? And and taking the bull by the horns, if I could use that analogy. So you took this adult gap year, which I want to get into in a minute. But, you know, why did you choose to take this story and turn it into this mission, this book, this why? What what drove you to get this, this book out there? You know, John, when I talk to people before I took my gap year, while I was in Mexico, when I returned, so many people said to me, you're so brave. I would love to do that, but I can't. I'm stuck. I, this is the path. I've invested too much time and effort in this career to walk away. There was like this idea of the sunk cost, if we had to flip it to economic terms, that people felt like, this is it. This is what I've got. And yeah, it might not be what I want, but here I am. The other thing that I heard a lot was to that point of burnout that many people had experienced it, but we didn't talk about it. And for me, the burnout came probably the initial onset of burnout came about six years before the adult gap year. I was going up for partner. I was, my kids were young. I had asked people for advice of how to make partner. And it was like, take on everything, do a good job. Don't mess up. And I was like, okay, great. That's what I will do. No pressure. pressure. None, none whatsoever. (laughs) Just don't let them see you mess it up. And one night I was at home. It was February of 2014. My husband was traveling. My kids were young at the time and they were being young kids. They didn't want to go to bed. They were hopped up on sugar. The house was a mess and I lost it. And I started screaming at them and I scared myself and I scared the kids. And I, pulled myself out of the situation and looked at myself in the mirror in my bedroom. And I didn't recognize who I was. I was just like this gray shell of myself. And in that instance, a voice, like almost like it was planted by someone else came into my head and said, I wonder what it would feel like to have a gun in your mouth. And I was terrified, but I couldn't say anything. I got help. I went, I saw a therapist, but I didn't tell my husband. I didn't tell my colleagues. I didn't tell my friends because that would be messing it up. And fast forward to when I stepped away from my career, 
so many people had a similar story. And I was like, wait a second, I buried this for six years because I was ashamed that I couldn't keep up. And I wanted to be able to tell people, one, we don't have to bury these stories. And two, there's a different way for us to approach this one life that we get to live. And how do we maximize and make the most out of it? So that's sort of the mission behind it is to normalize that a lot of us have this burnout and that we can do something about it. And your way is not going to be my way. And my way is not going to be somebody else's way. But we can all find a different way to find joy and happiness. And talk about the most extreme circumstance in your case, driving you to even just contemplate suicide for a second is a pretty scary thing to give us an indication of just how how deep you had gone into this abyss of you know pain and suffering and trying to climb, you know, run through that hamster wheel. So it sounds like was this, you know, is this what drove you to this gap year, this this sort of low point in your life? And why it's Oaxaca, <laughs> by the way? Had you been there before? And and for those who don't know, Oaxaca is in kind of the boot or the heel of Mexico, right? Kind of down there yeah. near Latin, Central America. Yeah. So it it actually wasn't. So if it, you know, when that those the suicidal ideation came up for me it was in 2014. And I sought help, but I pushed it down again. Like I took that feeling and I pushed it down because I was doing what I was told I was I should be doing. I was on the career path. I had a lot of potential. Everyone was telling me this was my goal. And I thought, okay, it's my goal. Here I go. What really prompted it? And I won't say COVID was the, the impetus because clearly 2014 was well before the pandemic, but it certainly was the straw that broke the camel's back. And so on July 14th of 2020, we got the email that said the kids wouldn't be going back to school. And I immediately knew, I was like, I can't do this again. I can't go back to the way we had spent those few months before us working around the clock, the kids not having any interaction. And I took a walk because the voice that had been whispering, is this all there is? She finally screamed at the top of her lungs. You can do better. You must do better. But in that moment, I didn't know what better was. So I just went for a walk and sort of like another idea planted by someone else. It came and said to me, you can go somewhere. Why don't you move? And just, you've always wanted to go international. Why don't you use this year to let the kids zoom into school, to work remotely? You take a sabbatical. And from that point on, it was a calling. Now, the question of why Oaxaca, if you think back to July of 2020, there were like three countries in the world that would let Americans in. One was Kazakhstan, a small island in the Caribbean, and then Mexico. And we had some really good friends who were at the embassy in Mexico City. So we called them and asked for, one, are we crazy to think that this will work? And they said, no, great idea. We think this is a fantastic use of your time. And two, here are a couple of cities that we would recommend you to consider. And I took one look at Oaxaca, had never been there. I barely knew how to say it other than from a diner. There's a an omelet that they call the Oaxaca omelet, and they actually phonetically spell it for you. But I took one look at Oaxaca, and it was another thing I just knew. I was like, we are going. And eight weeks later, we were there. Wow. As I recall, the downtown has cobblestone streets. 
There is cobblestones everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. I remember just being a very storybook little town. As I said, I was there in, I think, 94. Some friends got married down there, actually, and had the great privilege to go to that just a gorgeous part of the country. And I think one a lot of tourists don't think about. They think about Cozumel or Cancun or something, but great part of the country. How did you convince your family that, hey, we're going to uproot ourselves for 12 months and go live in this kind of very remote place? How did that work out? So my husband was a lot easier to convince. We we had actually found a summer camp that was open in July of 2020. And it was down in North Carolina. We dropped our kids off. Two days later, I get the email. I literally run back down the hill to this cabin that we were renting because I'm so excited. And just like, this is the only answer in my mind is we're going to move somewhere. And Oaxaca turned out to be the where. And my husband came home and sat down for dinner. And I said, I have a crazy idea. What if we moved to Mexico? And he looked at me and there was this pregnant pause, which (laughs) I'm sure took about three seconds in reality. But in my mind was like a year and a half of him looking at me. I can see wheels turning and me sitting there going, oh, my God, this is the only answer to to this problem that I see. If he says no, I don't know what. And he kind of kept this look on his face of confusion and perplexion. And I finally just said, forget it. It was a crazy idea. I don't know what I was thinking. And he said, stop. It is crazy. You're crazy. And we're doing it. <laughs> and so he was on board within like, you know, I mean, the the five seconds of when I told him that I wanted to do this. Our kids were a different matter because now think about it. We dropped them off to go to camp, not an inkling in our mind that we were going to move to Mexico. We pick them up two weeks later, stop for Chick-fil-A. We're sitting in a grass field and we say, hey, guys, we have news. We're going to move to Mexico. And they all looked at us like, "Are, are you kidding is this for real? They're looking at each other and we're like, yep, it's real. Here's the house that we rented. Here's what we're going to do. I won't say there was no outright pushback from them of like, no, this is not what we're going to do. There wasn't a wild endorsement of the plan. (laughs) They just sort of went along. My husband did, Bill did a much better job of appealing to their senses of, you know, you can take horseback riding lessons. You can ride mountain bikes. There's a lot of art that we can do. There'll be a pool when it's wintertime. And eventually they came on board. Their biggest concern was how would we get the dog there? And we ultimately did. Wow. So took a, 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 a little bit of work to get the family on board with it, but I love that your husband dove in after sort of processing the thought. And what about the next layer? Now you're going to your friends and family members that live outside of your home and saying, hey, I'm moving to Mexico and I'm an adult and I'm going to quit my job. What was the reaction to that? You know, there were there were a lot of different reactions. The biggest surprise is people who I thought would be the most resist, including my parents. I was really scared to tell my parents. They were the most supportive. And there were people who I knew who are very adventurous and looked at me and said, you're doing what? You're moving down to Mexico. You have no rental agreement. You're just going to show up with a bunch of pesos. Like somebody's going to rob you. This is the scam of a lifetime. And and so I was really surprised by my impressions going in of what I how I thought people were going to react versus how they actually did. I would say by and large, most people were like, wow, this is kind of a really great way to 
turn lemons into lemonades, or if we want to be on brand, limes into margaritas. And you quit your big corporate job to do this, right? So I took a sabbatical for for the period of time that I was there. I didn't necessarily walk away right at that point in time because I wasn't sure if what I was supposed to be doing still lived within the firm. And, And that's what I had to figure out, but I knew I couldn't figure it out while I was running ever faster and faster on the corporate treadmill. I needed to step off and step away so that I could figure out truly what that calling for what is next would be. Well, bravo to your company for even having that as an option, sabbatical, right? And some firms would just say, good luck and and send you on your way. That is amazing. So a big part of the story here is sort of slowing down, reflecting, letting go of what we think is normal and what we're supposed to be doing. How did you slow down and really let go? What What did that look like for you? It was a really interesting process because when you say slow down, it sounds so easy. Just stop doing. I couldn't stop doing. That autopilot that I was constantly on of checking email and constantly worrying, it became really hard. But as I started to immerse myself in life in Mexico, I found I needed to be more present, more present to understand the language, more present to figure out where I was going. And pretty soon I was practicing this mindfulness that wasn't sitting and meditating, but was actually being in the moment and being fully present. And then I could take that and translate it to being fully present with my kids in a way that I never had been before as it relates to school, because I was always off early for meetings and traveling for work. And that was kind of my husband's domain was the school, the school day. I also said yes to a lot of things that I would have said no to or wouldn't have even noticed previously. I went to this yoga retreat on the beach in Oaxaca. And when we got there, the woman said, okay, so our day one activity is going to be a silent retreat for the 24 hours. And I was like, well, that was not on the itinerary. (laughs) (laughs) And it was so hard. I felt itchy because I couldn't speak. And like the only way to scratch the itch was actually to talk. My thoughts went all over. And finally, I would love to say I just got comfortable with the silence, but I think I got annoyed with my internal chatter and finally just stopped listening. And when I stopped listening, I heard the voice again. They said very loud and with much direction, I want to do design. And I had no idea what that meant, but I was like, well, that was pretty, pretty declarative. Like I'm going to pick that little nug it up and put it in my pocket and figure out what to do with it later. But I just took these small steps towards slowing down. And I realized I loved being present in the moment. Letting go, also really difficult. You know, the first thing that was a little bit easier to let go of was the stuff. I know I had constantly been driven when I was in the States by that need to buy more, fill more, shopping on websites in the dead of night because I couldn't sleep. That seemed like a great idea, but having no idea what would show up. In Mexico, that was just harder. Like there was no online shopping per se. And so sometimes you'd have to figure out, okay, if if I need something, do I really need it? Is there a substitute? And most times we found we could go without. So that was the first letting go. The second letting go was really letting go of perfectionism that had 
I had always viewed as a positive for myself and I came to realize was really a negative. And I went into that with the ways that I was failing. I was failing on a daily basis in speaking Spanish, in the customs, in all of these things that I just didn't know how to do. And it was okay. Like no one was judging me. It wasn't this big problem. So that's sort of how I kind of came to letting go of that perfectionism. Whoa. That story just really spoke to me. And I love this idea of going to a silent retreat, an unexpected silent retreat for the first day. And I'm trying to picture this thing, Suzanne. Were you in a room with all these other people sitting there quietly all day or do they kind of send you off by yourself? You could go anywhere you wanted. You could walk the beach. You could go to, into the pool. You could go up onto the palapa. You just had to be quiet. Just no talking, no cell phones. You know, I had the great privilege of traveling to some really remote parts of Africa this year, Uganda. And so many places, we didn't have any kind of cell phone connection. There was certainly no TVs. And I have to tell you, I remember at one point thinking, oh my gosh, our you know, I wonder what's happening in the news or whatever. And after about a day, I just kind of even that thought just left my mind. And I was like, oh, turns out I haven't watched the news and I'm just fine. You know, yeah. I haven't texted anybody. You know, I was at night, you could get Wi Fi at the hotel or whatever. And I'd maybe text some family and friends and whatnot. But it was amazing to just truly cut the cord and the impact that had on me. And I've never come back from a trip so refreshed as I did from having that true disconnection. And it sounds like a, a similar journey here. Exactly. Amazing. So obviously your family plays such a role in these, in the, all these stories, you know, how did they change? You know, what, what, and what lessons were picked up along the way with the family? You know, they took, they all took risks. They all learned to take risks and then tether back to the connection with the family for what they needed. My daughter took horseback riding lessons and my son started mountain biking with a bunch of in the evenings. My other daughter took painting lessons. They really upped their perception and their empathy. I remember this one time, there's no Christmas tree farms down there, right? And, and so when Christmas rolls around, you go and you buy a giant pinata. And I wanted the biggest pinata that I could find. <laughs> and so I had one made by our cleaning person's cousin. And we drove the hour to go down to, to get the pinatas and were invited in by Carlos and his family, who's all in the road waiting for us. And we stepped through the corrugated fence and into what I thought was their yard, but they had invited us into their home and dirt floors, the big pot of soup cooking over an open fire, a very small structure that housed the bedrooms with an actual roof over it. And then they showed us their pinatas and how they made them. And they were so proud. And I bought more pinatas than I probably should have. We were like tying them into the back of our truck to drive the hour home with these pinatas. And as we pulled away, my my oldest daughter, Emily, looked at me and she said, you know, we strive for all of this stuff and we have so much more and they had nothing and they were so happy. We're not that happy with all of the stuff that we have. And so they just became more perceptive. I feel like we opened their world, but we also brought the people in that world a lot closer to them. You know, seeing different parts of the world, I think, is such an important lesson for all of us, not only in our own country, but to go outside the country to see these different perspectives and really get an appreciation for what we have or don't have. And, you know, as I said, you know, being detached from my phone for, you know, 12 days was honestly one of the, I think, one of the best things I've ever done. 
and not seeing an Amazon box on my front porch, you know, every day, which is so often the case. And certainly they don't have that. And yet they're insanely happy. When when we were in Uganda, we visited a uh, an orphanage that the tour guide was associated with. 50 children between the ages of four and 15. They had no shoes. They were literally living in dirt outside one of the national parks. No floors, thatched roofs. I mean, it looked like a movie set. And they performed five or six shows for us, dance routines. And I remember thinking, these are the happiest people I've ever met. Mm -hmm. And they literally had, by American standards, literally nothing. And it was mind-blowing. It sounds like a similar experience there. What a great moment for your children and your family to enjoy together and to experience and learn from. Incredible. Speaking of shoes, you talk about shoes in the book. What's what's the the theme there with the shoes you talk about? For me, I've always looked as high heels at high heels as my superpower. When I needed to feel confident in a room, I would put on a pair of heels. Boardroom, on a stage, at a presentation. If I was in heels, I felt better. So even packing to go to Mexico, I'm shoving a pair of heels and, and Bill's looking at me going, what, what's that for? And I was like, well, what if we get invited to a party? I'm going to need heels. And his response was, you're going to need heels. And because his view of needs is like more of like Maslow's hierarchy, like food trumps all else. And I just shoved them in at the end, at the end of, you know, that was the end of the discussion. Like heels are going, have to have them. I will say to your point about the cobblestone streets, the one and only time I tried to wear those heels, I stepped into the street, rolled my ankle and ended up on my hands and knees. But I came to view them, what I had once thought them of as my super suit, they really were a costume that I was wearing. And the heels became this costume of who I was and who I thought I wanted to be. And on the flip side, when I got to Mexico and I realized that most of my shoes were not conducive to the the cobblestones, I got a pair of Birkenstocks. And I'd always wanted Birkenstocks, but I have pretty big feet. And so I never allowed myself to get them here because they were, I felt like I'd look like Fred Flintstone and I'd be judged (laughs) for having like giant crazy shoes. And I found that they were molded to my feet eventually. I mean, and that's like the benefit of of a Birkenstock is that they mold to your feet. And ultimately, when I came away, I realized I didn't want to live a life where I was putting on a costume and having a performance lifestyle like the high heels. And I wanted a life that was molded to my feet and fit me versus trying to fit somebody else's version of me. And don't don't get me wrong, John. When I got home, I didn't throw all my heels away. I still have them. There's still a couple in the closet. But I that. have many pairs of Birkenstocks now. I mean, what a fantastic metaphor. And to think about, you know, right, having the life that you want, have the comfort that you want, not having to put on this costume to sort of live this life that you think others expect of you, or maybe they do expect of you, but realizing that isn't the journey that I'm on here. Absolutely fantastic. You know, you learned so much during your adult gap year with your family. What do you think the process of writing the book, the, the year or so you spent writing the book, what, what do you think you learned further about yourself throughout that journey and putting pen to paper on this epic story? There's a couple of things I think I learned about myself. One is just this notion of asking a community for for help and support. People were so willing and generous with their time, and that really felt Amazing. Like at first, I was like, nobody's going to want to help me with this. In Oaxaca, there is a Zapotec word that is galagetza, 
And its meaning loosely translates into English as to giving and reciprocity. And it's this idea that you give with an open heart and you receive with an open heart. And I think through the process of writing the book and being in Mexico itself, but kind of translating those stories and sharing with others, I really got to experience that full appreciation of Galagatza that people gave freely and supported me. And I know that I will be there to return the favor at some point in time for them. Wow. Give freely and support others rather than this keeping up with the Jones thing, right? That we are so familiar with here. What a beautiful concept. Do you have that on a sign anywhere in your house? <laughs> sounds like a good I probably one. should put it up. <laughs> right. We got one this past year. It's in the kitchen above the stove. It says, I love you more than bacon. So maybe something, you know, maybe an idea there to, to play that's off a, of. That's a, that's a big love. <laughs> right. What has been an unexpected positive for you in, in this journey of getting the book off the, I think and soon that, to be published? Yes. I think that for me, the unexpected positive is kind of really realizing how much I value courage. There's a whole chapter in my book that talks about values. And when I went into this, I had two very clear values around authenticity and making a difference. But I've come to realize, and if, you know, I guess this is why a book is, an author thinks the book is never done. I have a third and it's really around courage and not doing something because you're not afraid, but being afraid and doing something anyway. And realizing that on the other side of courage is beauty and joy and satisfaction and fulfillment. And that is what I'm so appreciative of, that I didn't have that perspective. I recently returned to Oaxaca and went on a hike and the guide took me up to this sacred peak, had me had my eyes closed and I opened them and it was this vista that was just gorgeous. And I thought to myself, if I hadn't had the courage to listen to my intuition in 2020, I wouldn't be standing here today. Or if I was standing here, I wouldn't have the same appreciation. So really that understanding that I value courage so much is something that has been an unanticipated gift. Wow. Courage. It sounds so simple, but so often we avoid it because there's always an easier path to take, right? And getting out of our comfort zone and Boy, to say that you have like gotten out of your comfort zone these last couple of years would be a bit of an understatement. You know, unfortunately, you had to hit a bit of a low to to kind of find your way here. And it took a while to get there, but you did it. And you've brought this beautiful story, this beautiful book to the world. Uh, Suzanne, speaking of this book, what what do you hope readers take away? What's the key message you'd like to leave them with? I'd really like to leave them with there's there's a different path if you want there to be. I love the Mary Oliver quote of tell me what is it that you're going to do with your one wild and precious life. And I think that we think about that one wild and precious life with there's one path for us. And there's not. There's multiple paths that we can take and it doesn't have to be moving to Mexico or taking an adult gap year, but if you can figure out what is going to bring you joy, and that there are ways to inject joy through slowing down, through letting go, through listening to your heart and the universe to point you in the right direction, you will find something bigger than and better than potentially what you have today. That's what I would love for people to take away. Finding joy can actually make your life better on all aspects and even potentially lead to doing something that you love to do for a living, right? And the old saying, if you find something you love to do, you'll never work a day in your life. And it sounds like that's very much what you're on the path for with not only the book, but this new business that you've launched. So Suzanne, what's next for you? What are some of your goals with the book? Well, so 
obviously there's all things book. There's the launch and book tours and things of that nature that are coming up in the next couple of months. But also building off of that from my coaching business, I will continue to do one-on-one coaching with people who are really looking to unlock their full potential and become more than what they have been. But also launching a program in the spring that is tied to, I'm supposed to be doing this through a group coaching that really explores some of these concepts and, and how you get to find that joy on the other side of being stuck or being afraid. And then coming in August, I will launch the inaugural Vamanos experience in Oaxaca, Mexico, which will be an eight-day retreat of in-depth coaching in a place that is so special with hiking and just time for reflection and good food. <laughs> Amazing. I, I'm i already thinking about signing up. Are men allowed? Is this a thing? Yes, absolutely. I love it. Suzanne, incredible story, incredible message about finding joy, finding your passion, purpose, and a better path forward and finding out what it is I'm supposed to be doing because we so often let others determine that for us. And bravo to you for having the courage to go out and, and carve your own path. And yes, I'm sure there were some painful moments along the way and quitting your job. What are you crazy or going in sabbatical? And here you are living, dare I say, your best life. Suzanne, if people want to learn more about you and your book, where might they go? You can go to vamanoscoaching.com or you can find me on Instagram, LinkedIn, and Facebook at Suzanne Roski. Want to share a quick quote, an early praise quote you got from Jenny Blumenthal, author of Corporate Rehab, Ditch the Hustle Culture and Thrive Again, about your book. She said, Suzanne really brings you inside her experience of being caught between ambition and wanting more in life, with plenty of vivid stories of just how she got more by letting go. How did it feel to get that quote from Miss Blumenthal? It was wonderful. It, it kind of like summarized the beginning to the end with a little bit of foreshadowing of what's in the middle of some of these stories that are humorous and touching and dare I say transformative, at least for me and I hope for others who are reading as well. Thank you so much for taking the time to share it with the creator community and our listeners. John, thank you very much. It's been a, my pleasure to be here. Suzanne Rosky's book, I'm Supposed to Be Doing This, will be available wherever you buy books online this January 2023. Don't forget to subscribe to the Creator Community channel on your favorite podcast platform and be sure to leave us a review. If you're ready to write your book, visit manuscripts.com to learn how to turn your idea into a book in about one year. I'm your host of the Creator Community, John Saunders. Keep creating.